Well, good morning. How are we doing? How are the few of us doing? Well, as Jed mentioned, we've been going through a celebration of Advent for the past several weeks. And this morning we're going to conclude that and we're going to look at the promise of, of Christ's return. And so we talked about Advent and how Advent simply meant it was a time of expectation for a notable person, thing, or event. And so we as a church recognize that that notable person is Jesus Christ. And we've also talked before, I didn't have enough room on my whiteboard to put everything I wanted on there, but we've talked before about creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, like the four major plot lines of the storyline of Scripture. Like you look all throughout the Bible, it follows this path of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. That's the storyline of Scripture. And if you look at Scripture through that storyline, you quickly realize that Jesus is everywhere in that storyline. Jesus, we don't just pick up in the Gospels and all of a sudden hear of Jesus for the first time. We've, we've seen this storyline of a Messiah's coming, and, and he's coming to redeem and to restore throughout all of Scripture. And so, as we've studied Advent, we see this whole storyline of Scripture all throughout Advent. And so, just in a quick review, we looked at in week one was the promise of a Savior. And we went all the way back to Genesis and saw creation and then saw the fall in, in the first three chapters of Genesis. It was the entrance of sin into the world through Adam and Eve. And immediately after this takes place, God speaks to Satan and we're presented with this promise of the Savior, the first mention of the gospel. Uh, the one person, the one Messiah that can right the wrong of sin, our sin. Adam's sin, Eve's sin, my sin, your sin. And Genesis three fourteen and 15 says, The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And here it is. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So right there we saw the first mention of the gospel, this promise of a Savior that was coming. And then in week two, we saw that this promise was fulfilled. And what you need to know about the promise was it wasn't just fulfilled. It was fulfilled exactly as it said it would be. We looked at Micah 5.2 that said the Savior will be born in Bethlehem. And where was the Savior born? He was born in Bethlehem. We saw that in Luke 2, 1 through 7. So the Savior was prophesied to be born in a certain city. That's exactly where he was born. It says in Luke 2, 1 through 7, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. So you've got Mary and Joseph who are living in a completely separate town, but you can see God working behind the scenes. And what should comfort you in that is that God controls everything. He controls the hands of governments. He controls the hands of powers. And he said, I'm working behind the scenes, and this is how I said it was going to go down, and that's exactly how it's going to go down. So Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem. It says, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So this one that was promised all the way back in Genesis 3, we see that promise fulfilled as Jesus is born in Bethlehem. The one who was sent to redeem humanity is now here. So we not only see creation and fall and the promise of a Savior, now we move to Jesus' birth and we see this 
this redemption storyline is starting to unfold because the Savior is here. We, we went on the next two weeks, and we looked at the shepherds in Luke 2, 8 through 21, and then the, last week we looked at the Magi in Matthew 2. You should be highly, highly, highly encouraged from these two stories. Because as we see this story of redemption unfold, what we see is the shepherds were the lowest of the low. The lowest of the low. If it, no one in, in, the, in the time, in the culture, in that space would have ever picked the shepherds to be the first people that were ter- told about the birth of Jesus. And yet that's who God chose to reveal it to. So the encouragement that we should get from that is if, if God went out of his way to speak to the shepherds, then it's not unreasonable to believe that God would go out of his way to speak to me. If God sent Jesus to save the shepherds, then God sent Jesus to save me. And then last week we looked at the Magi, and it gets even crazier because what you could still, you still could potentially think in the back of your mind, well, that's great, the shepherds were still Jewish. So Jesus came for the Jews, which was true. He came for the Jew first, but then the Gentile. And we saw that last week with the Magi. The Magi were pagans. They were pagans that were under the influence. They had heard some things that Daniel had said while he was in captivity in that area of the world several, several, several years ago. And so the Magi know there's this Messiah that's supposed to be born. This is what they said was going to happen. It's happening. Let's go check it out. And so we see that Jesus came to redeem not only the Jew, but also the Gentile. It's not redemption for some, it's redemption for all. And so this week, as we come to the last week of Advent, we're going to look at the promise of Jesus' second coming and this idea of restoration. Jesus didn't come to redeem us. He's going to come back again, and he's going to make all things as they were all the way back in Genesis 1. That should be highly encouraging to us. So this promise of the Savior was given, it was fulfilled. Jesus came and he laid his down his life for the sins of the world. That's why he came. If you leave here this morning and you don't understand anything or you don't catch anything but this, understand that Jesus came to lay down his life for the sins of the world. It wasn't chance. It wasn't just circumstance that, that happened to take place. It was the plan that Jesus came to give his life and lay down his life for the sins of the world. And we see that all the way from the beginning of story. Again, you can be comforted, be encouraged, and find peace that God is completely in control. In Luke one thirty one, we find out that what the name of, of Jesus is going to be. So Mary is given this promise if you're going to have a child. And the angel says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why is that significant? Because Jesus, the name Jesus simply means Yahweh saves. God saves. So from the very beginning, this was the plan. This was the plan. You see it further unfold in John one twenty nine. You see John the Baptist, who was preparing the way for Jesus. And it says, The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yahweh saves. Yahweh is going to save through Jesus as he has come to be the Lamb of God who's going to lay his life down to take away the sin of the world. And then we see in Luke 19.10, not only do we see the angel proclaim this, not only do we see John the Baptist proclaim this, but we're going to see Jesus proclaim it with his very words. In Luke 19.10, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He said, This is why I came. 
And this is why I'm here, to seek and to save the lost. The lost. But Jesus also spoke of an additional promise. And we've hinted at it throughout this whole study of Advent. And that other promise is that he's going to return. So we don't just celebrate Jesus as, as our Savior who came to redeem us from our sin. But we also anticipate the return of Jesus when he comes and he's going to restore everything to its rightful place. Again, we go back to the way that God created the world and intended it to be. Jesus is going to restore it just as it was. And Jesus spoke of this as well. In John 14, 1 through 3, he said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Jesus said, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. So we don't just get the promise of a Savior that will come. We get the promise from the Savior himself that he's coming again. Revelation 21, 1 through 4 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Jesus is coming back to restore things to the way they were intended to be. So this morning, as we prepare and as we anticipate for the return of our king, we have to ask the question. It's very reasonable to ask the question. So if Jesus is coming again, how am I to prepare? What am I to do? If I'm a follower of Christ, what am I to do in preparing for his second coming? And that's a legitimate question because here's the reality of the situation. We prepare for things every day. So as a coach, I spend a lot of time preparing players for a competition. That's my job. We're going to play in the games. We're going to spend all this time preparing so that when we get to the game, we can play in the game as well as we possibly can play. When I'm in the classroom, I spend a lot of time preparing students for this is the material, and we're going to take an exam. I've got to prepare you and, and get you to know the material so you can do well on the exam. Think about Christmas that just took place. How much preparation went into that event for, for multiple people in this room? Whether it was food, whether it was presents, whether it was... I mean, one thing... So I think about on one hand, as, as a male... I'm going to stereotype here. My apologies. But as a male, I mean, it's almost comical to me sometimes. You know, if somebody's coming over to your house, the wife's... Panic mode may be too strong, but we got to clean this place up because people are coming over. Well, we're in the male mind. You think, man, if, if, if so-and-so is my friend, they're not going to not be my friend because my house is a little dirty. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. But there's a lot of preparation on the wife's part that goes into, I want this to look as, as, as good as it possibly can, can look. Because, understandably, in her mind, it's, it's, a repu it's, a, it's a representation of her, right? And I, I didn't come to that realization until as crazy as this sounds, and you can mock me. You can mock me right now or when you leave. But whether it's silly or not, I mean, I feel the same way about my baseball field. So, I mean, when other teams come to play, like I want our field to look really good because I want 
people to know that we've worked hard, and I want people to come back and want to play here. And I finally, it finally dawned on me one day that's the same way that my wife feels about the house. Right? But, it, but either way, in both scenarios, there's a lot of preparation that goes into place. So if we, all of those things that I just listed off are very temporal. They're time-constrained. They happen, they're over. But if we spend all that time preparing for temporal things, then how much more are we to prepare for Christ coming back that's going to be an eternal thing? So that's a reasonable question for us to ask. If Christ is coming back, how do I prepare? So that's where we're going to spend our short time this morning. How are we to prepare for the second coming of Jesus? And the main idea that I want to drive home is it's, it's simply live a life of faithfulness. Live a life of obedience and devotion to your king. That's how you prepare. Now, some of you may agree, and some of you may not agree, but the argument that I want to make this morning is that everyone in this room is faithful. Everyone in this room is faithful. The only question is, what are you faithful to? What are you faithful to? And the verse that I want to to brand in your brain this morning, that I want you to leave out here and spend some time meditating on as we enter the new year, is Luke 12, 20. And it says, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? And if you want to turn your Bible to Luke 12, that's where we're going to spend the most of our time this morning. But that's a pretty strong statement. Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And that may seem like a harsh statement. But simply because it's a harsh statement, that doesn't remove the fact that it's a true statement. It doesn't take away its truthfulness in any way. At some point in the future, either upon our death or upon the return of our king, every person in this room will have their soul required of them. That's the truth. And what will matter at that time is where your treasure is. That's all that's going to matter. Where is your treasure? So what's going on here? It's, it's almost, I don't know if it's wrong, but it's a little provocative at least to, to quote that verse and not give it any context. So, so let's dive into Luke 12 and look exactly at what's going on. And in Luke 12, 13 through 21, this is the parable of the rich fool. And so Jesus is walking along the way, and someone in the crowd says to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told him a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So Jesus is walking along the way, and it's reasonable to expect expect that there's a crowd. It's, this is far enough along in his ministry that word has gotten around, and people are, who is this guy? We want to know more about this guy. So he's walking along the, on the way. He's, he's speaking to a crowd, and he's interrupted by this man who requests that he settle the dispute with his brother over a family inheritance. This is a family squabble. We've come into some money. Probably, somebody's probably died, 
And my bigger brother, presumably, I'm reading a lot into this, but my bigger brother wants to stockpile the money and not give me any. Jesus, will you do something about this and tell him to give me my fair share? So it's not real hard to see that this man is focused on money. He's focused on money. And Jesus takes this opportunity to teach the crowd about the dangers of materialism. He says in verse 15 specifically, Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Your life doesn't exist or doesn't consist in the abundance of your possessions. That's what Jesus says. That's the main idea. And he goes on to tell a parable about a man who's successful beyond his own expectations. He's successful more than he could have ever imagined. And so Jesus is in the midst of an agricultural society. That's what people know. They plant stuff, it grows, they cut it down. And so he, he, he throws agriculture into the parable. Why? So, the, so he can connect, so the people get it, right? And so this man has had an unbelievable crop. He's thrown his seed out, and it's grown far more than he could have ever imagined. So he goes out of his way to store it all. He's got to tear down his barns and build more and make them bigger because I've got so much. And what happens is he starts to recognize this crop as the source of his security. And what does God do? God, God calls him out and recognizes this man as a fool because he's failed to recognize the importance of the state of his soul. He's placed all of his treasure on earth and none of his treasure in heaven. God points out that, that all of this stuff that the man has, it's meaningless. In verse 21, it says, The one who stores up treasure for himself is not rich towards God. And that's not the way that you talk, and that's not the way that I talk. So what is he talking about, and what does it mean? Well, this, this phrase, rich toward God, simply means treasure in heaven. So if you wanted to paraphrase and restructure this verse a little bit, you might could better understand it as, the person, the one whose primary focus is storing up treasure for himself on earth. He won't have any treasure stored up in heaven because he spent all of his time, his focus, and his energy on storing up things here on earth. But the catch is, all that stuff's not going to last. Only the treasure that you store up for heaven is going to last. Right? And that's exactly what, what Jesus says. So the point is, don't let greed for temporary treasure keep you from eternal treasure. Don't go throughout your life and let your greed for temporary treasure keep you from eternal treasure. It's real interesting because at this point, Jesus turns from the crowd and talks directly to his disciples. So he's examined this way of the world, but now he turns to his disciples and he's going to provide a corrective. So he's basically shown the disciples, this is the way that the world thinks. This is the wrong way to think. And he turns to them and he's going to teach them directly and say, this is how you're supposed to think. So he goes on in verses 22 through 34 and says, And he said to the disciples, so he's turned his focus from the crowd to the disciples, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Stop right there for just a second. Understand that you are blessed far beyond measure. You are blessed far beyond measure. And if we just glance over this passage, it's not going to connect. Because for, I would dare say for everybody in this room or the vast majority of people in this room, food's not a thing. 
I mean, we're going to get ready to go in here and have a, have a great lunch, and we're not going to think two things about it. But to people in this day, a lot of people in this day, food was a big deal. A, a, a good meal today was a big deal. He goes on to talk about clothes and the body more than clothing. Clothing's no big deal to the vast majority of people in this room, the vast majority of people that you know. Clothing's not a big deal. Back then, if I had multiple pairs of clothing, that's a big deal. I was a wealthy man. So Jesus is pointing directly to things that equate with wealth during the day. He says, For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? What's the point of worrying? What's it going to get you? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is... There will be your heart also. Here's the point. Jesus says, don't be anxious. Don't worry about material things. Don't worry about food. Don't worry about clothes. Because life is more than food and stuff. God takes care of the birds. Why won't he take care of you? Why would you think that God would not take care of you if he takes care of the birds? Worry doesn't produce anything. It doesn't change anything. So what's the point? All that worry does is it reveals a faith problem. That's all worry does is it reveals a faith problem. So rather than worry about things, believers should concentrate on the concerns of the kingdom of God. That's a difficult proposition because it's a very human thing to do to be anxious. It's a very human thing to do to be worried, right? So what's the cure? Well, here's the cure. Jesus calls out the nations. And he says, those are the things that the nations do. Don't seek out what you're to eat and what you're to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things. But God knows that you need them. So we have to recognize that the pagan world seeks security through, the, through things. That's what the pagan world does. Seek security through things. While Christians are to seek security on, through God. That doesn't mean that we don't plan That doesn't mean that we don't prepare. But my primary focus should not be like this individual in the parable earlier where he was thinking about the money. That's all he was thinking about. That's what drove him. That's what woke him up in the morning. That's what kept him from going to sleep at night. And as a Christian, I don't find my security in the things of the world. I find my security through God. Recognize that God knows what we need and seek his kingdom first. So again, it comes back to this simple statement faithfulness and obedience. We're to be faithful and obedient to God. And this is where Jesus pivots right here on this point and directly moves into talking about preparation for his second coming. 
So we come back to this question of, well, if Jesus is coming again, how do I prepare? And these two things are directly connected. This view of materialism versus am I built, storing up earthly treasure or am I stirring, storing up heavenly treasure? It's directly connected to how do I prepare if Jesus is going to come again? So Jesus gives us three parables. We're going to move through these real quick. I know this is a lot of verses. In Luke 12, 35 through 48, three parables. The first is a parable of the prepared servants, 35 through 38. Jesus says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table, and he will come and he will serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. So there were typically multiple watches in the night. And I think that I read there were it's a two or three hour window. And there were typically four watches in the night. There's a first watch, a second watch, a third watch, and a fourth watch. Think military. It's your turn. Keep an eye out. I'll come back, tap out. I'll go to sleep. Now it's your turn on the second watch. Then it's your turn on the third watch. And the point here is it doesn't matter what time the master comes back. Is the servant ready? doesn't matter if it's the first watch early in the evening or if it's the fourth watch and it's really early in the morning. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So the parable simply commands us as believers to be ready for Christ's coming just as a servant has a lamp already lit in preparation for the master's return. This implies anticipation, I know he's coming, and action, I'm doing something about it. I'm going to be ready for it. So the servant knows the master's coming, and he's going to be ready regardless of what time it is, what the situation is, what the scenario is. He knows he's coming, and he's always going to be on guard. And what happens is, if he's on guard, he's blessed when the master returns. The second parable is the parable of the alert homeowner in verses 39 and 40. It says, But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. So the first one says, be ready. And the second one is a parable of warning. And Jesus uses this example of a home break-in. The homeowner, you as a homeowner, you as a renter, wherever it is, wherever you dwell, you have no idea if a thief is coming or not. When he's coming or when he isn't coming. That's the point that Jesus makes. Now, this, this guy gets his house broken into, and the point is, is if he had known that that's when the thief was coming, he would have been better prepared for it. So the idea here is that believers were to know that Jesus is coming again. We just walk through the promise. Jesus himself, the very words of Jesus said, I'm coming again. You know that he's coming again. So if we know that he's coming again, then we're to be prepared. And not only are we be prepared, but we're to be prepared at all times because just like the thief, we don't know when Jesus' second coming is going to be. And you will have no option to say, oh, if I had known, I would have prepared better. Our job is to know that he's coming and to prepare. The last is the parable of the manager in 41 through 48. So Peter turns to Jesus. This is interesting. So Jesus is given two parables. Peter turns back to Jesus and says, and remember, where are we coming from? If we assume that all of these are connected, right, in time, then we've got Jesus addressing the crowd. 
Now we've got Jesus addressing the disciples. He gives two parables. And Peter looks at him and says, come on, man. He says, is this for us or is this for us? Who, who are we talking to here? That's what Peter says in verse 41. Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant who his master will find him doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master will and that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive, receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will require a light beating. Everyone to whom was, much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So Peter turns to Jesus and he says, Who's this for? Is this for us as disciples or is this for everybody? And Jesus doesn't really address Peter's question. Jesus, Jesus responds to Peter's question with another question. And he doesn't answer Peter's question directly. He doesn't say, well, this is for the disciples. He doesn't say this is for everybody. Which leads us to believe that this parable is for anyone that understands it. And so Jesus asks the question, well, who's, who's the faithful servant? And he gives a correct answer and he gives a wrong answer. The correct answer is, the faithful servant is the one that's given a task, performs the task, and as a result is blessed by the master. In verse 44, that's what Jesus said, that this faithful servant, because of these things, because he was given a task, because he performed the task, he will be set over all the master's possessions. Again, that's not how we talk. So what's he talking about here? To be set over all the master's possessions simply means this. This is the point that Jesus is making. The reward that the servant will get for being faithful and obedient will far outweigh the challenges and hazards that the, that the servant encountered while he was serving the master. And that applies to you and that applies to me. The difficulties of this life. Whatever I encounter, if I am faithful and if I am obedient, the reward that I will receive from my king when he returns will far outweigh any difficulty that I encounter in my attempt to serve him. What, is that, what does that require, though? It requires faith. Because all that I really know, know, know is in the moment, this is difficult. But I have to have faith that Jesus himself said, your reward will be greater than the difficulty that you encounter right now. And he goes on and he gives the wrong answer. So who's not the faithful servant? It's the man that said, well, the master's delayed. The master's delayed. It's the, I'm a school teacher. It's the kid that's sitting in the class and the teacher hasn't walked in yet and he's like, we can do stuff because the teacher's not here. We got a few minutes, let's get wild. That's what the servant, the unfaithful servant is. So he decides to get drunk. He decides to beat his servants and he decides to do whatever he wants. That's the point. And then guess what? The teacher walks in the room and he's caught red-handed and he's not blessed, but he's punished. So here's the point of all three of these parables. 
as Jesus' disciples, we must live with the expectation that he will return. Because that's what he said. And if we live with that expectation, then we'll be found faithful and our faithfulness will be rewarded. But if we live with disregard for the fact that he's coming again, we'll be found unfaithful and we'll be punished. So again, we come back to the question, well, how can I be ready when he comes? Live a life of obedience and faithfulness that's focused on eternal things and not temporal things. We're to be followers of Christ. Followers. So what does that mean? So just wrapping up, what does it mean to be a a follower of Christ? What does it mean to be a disciple? Well, if we go to Luke 9.23, Jesus talks about, in in this passage, he talks about, well, what's the mark of a true disciple? And he's speaking to the disciples, and he says, if anyone would come after me, that's another way to say, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Those are the requirements of a disciple. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. So we find here in this passage three, three conditions of discipleship. I'm a little hesitant to go here, but I'm going to go here because I got professors that say, don't ever do this. And then I got Dale that says, do it, teach us. So if you don't like it, tell me you hate it. And if you like it, I'll keep on. But it's real interesting if you look at this passage in the original language, because you see three marks of true discipleship. The first is that you have to deny yourself. Let him deny himself. It speaks of self-denial. Okay, now what's interesting about this is this is in the aorist tense in Greek, which is a one-time event in the past. Okay, it's a one-time in the past, it happened, in a story. Okay, you move to the second one, and he says, and he's got to take up his cross. Again, in the aorist tense. One time, past tense, this happened, it's over. But it's real interesting that Luke goes on to add daily. And then he goes on to say, and you've got to follow me. And this follow is a present imperative, which means continually, all the time, it never ends. So it's the opposite of the aorist tense. This is, I'm doing it today, I'm doing it tomorrow, I'm doing it the next day, and I'm doing it again, and I'm never stopping. So it's almost as if the, the sentence should read, if anyone would come after me, let him wake up every morning, and let the first thing that he does... Let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross. And then he's going to follow me. And tomorrow, he's going to do the same thing. Because it's not as simple as, I'm going to deny myself and I'm done, good, I'm ready to go. I mean, maybe for you, but I'm a pretty selfish individual. So there has to be this intent of, the first thing that I do is I'm going to set my heart on him. And I'm going to deny myself. And I'm going to have to remind myself of that tomorrow morning. And then the next morning. And then the next morning. But I have to understand that as I follow him, it's a continual action. All the days of my life. A life of true discipleship is a life of faithfulness that's committed to the task until the return of the king. 
And this takes me back to the original thought that I had. Everyone in the room, including myself, everyone in the room is faithful. But the question is, what are we faithful to? Am I faithful to myself or am I faithful to my king? The truth is that our king is coming. And as we enter the new year, I want to challenge us to reflect more on the second coming of Christ. Because what it does, if I keep it in the forefront of my mind that my king is coming then it does nothing but motivate me to live a more holy life in service to my king because I know he's coming. Because my primary desire should be to live the life of a faithful servant. And again, as you you leave today, just in the forefront of your mind, we come back to that Luke 12, 20, where God says, Fool, this not your soul is required of you. I don't know when that night's going to be. I don't know if tonight's my night. I don't know if next week is my night. I don't know if 40 years from now is my night. I don't know if next week my king's coming back. But regardless of knowing whether, where that day is or where it falls, I do know that he's coming back. And that when that happens, my soul will be required of me. And, and will I be found faithful to myself, or will I be found faithful to him? So as we go into this new year, understand that. And maybe that's something that we don't talk about a lot, but fool, your soul will be required of you. So where does your soul stand? Am I faithful? Am I not faithful? Do I understand that my king is coming? It's not my king may come. My king is coming. And am I preparing for his return? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this season of Advent and this just this reminder that you are a God who is true to his word. That even though we fall and that we stumble, that you made a promise that we would be redeemed, that redemption is coming. And we've seen that promise fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. And we celebrated that birth. But Lord, as we move forward, may we look forward with anticipation to your return, that, that you didn't just send your son to redeem us, but that he'll come again to restore us, to restore this world so that it will be just as you intended it to be, so that we can be in full relationship with you. Lord, how I long for that day. And I pray that as a church body, both corporately and individually, that that we're preparing for that return and that we're preparing in a way that we're faithful, we're obedient, so the world can see you in things that we do and that we would draw them to you in your glory. Lord, as we enter this new year, I pray for a blessing on this church. I pray for more mission opportunities. I pray for for more ways for this place to point to you, both here and abroad. Thank you, Lord, for all you are and all that you've done. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.